back to the Brush Builders Union podcast. I'm your host, Simon Berman, General President of the Brush Builders Union, and I am here with a guest I've wanted to speak to you for quite a while, and that is professional miniatures painter Matt DiPietro. Matt, thanks so much for joining today. Oh, thanks for, so much for having me, Simon. Uh, yeah, man. We've known yeah. each other a long time now, haven't we? Yeah. I mean, how many years we worked together at Privateer? Like, probably six or seven at least. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I remember you were you had just started a little bit before I started there. Although you you got your start at Privateer packing miniatures just like I did, didn't you? Yes, I was in the uh, warehouse for almost a year packing the little miniatures into little boxes, and that's how I got my start. Yeah. Yeah, me too. That's <laughs> kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our paths obviously took different routes, but um, you know, so were you were you painting miniatures, or I mean, you must have been a miniatures painter and miniatures player before you started working at Privateer, right? Yeah, absolutely. I um, I got started way back um, probably when I was 12. Actually, I guess even before that, I was making like uh, tanks and airplanes and stuff with my dad. But uh, got, when I found out about you know, miniature gaming, I got into that. And that was really great. And I've been a miniature gamer for probably like 10 years by the time I um, started at Privateer. And I would even uh, competed in the Golden Demon and got got my one golden demon, and so I had some awards. But I was really into miniature painting, and I knew that if I could make it into, so somebody had to paint those models that went on the box sets. So right, you know, if I could make that uh, my my gig, that's what I wanted to do. And I knew that privateer was like, you know, a great opportunity at least to to give it a try. And, and sure. it ended up working out. <laughs> that's really cool. What what was your first professionally painted miniature? I mean, I've been painting miniatures for like kind of collectors at the local yeah. store and that sort of thing. I think that's like a really common experience for people, you know, who are into painting. And a lot of times it was just like whatever the new thing was that I was excited about. All I had to do was find somebody else who was excited about it, and I'd, I'd give them a really great price and paint it up for them <laughs> because I wanted to paint it, you know. Sure, uh, but. I mean, the first professional, like, company I painted for was Privateer. I mean, back then, it was basically, there weren't a lot of other companies out there. Yeah. And I think the first model I painted um, professionally for Privateer was, like, this um, unit attachment for the press, no, not the press gang, uh, the the Sea Dogs. Sea Dogs, yeah. Yeah, the Sea Dog unit attachment with the rifle, the rifle unit attachment. That That's right. Miniature that I painted professionally for them. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. And it was it was still some time after I painted that that I was able to start full time in the studio. Sure. There. Yeah. So, but, um, yeah, you know, so I, I guess you had, you had done a bunch of painting beforehand. Uh, you know, you'd done a, you'd won a Golden Demon. That's correct. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In 2002, I was 18 years old. <laughs> it was wow. the first time I had ever traveled by myself anywhere. <laughs> so <laughs> I was, just a little, little kid in in the big city of Chicago, <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was really crazy um, that I was able to go and I, I brought you know um, a duel that I had done between two characters and I ended up getting first place that year in the duel category and um, I don't know like you go back and you look at the miniature and it's like oh you know <laughs> 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 but you know it was a different time different. Yeah. Miniature painting was really different back then, and you know it's gone come so far since then. The level is like insane comparatively 
if we could go back in time with some of the models that we have painted right now, it would just like completely blow people's minds, you know? Oh yeah. You know, uh, but I still have the model and my, my demon has taken knocks over the years. At one point, <laughs> a, a, a roommate knocked it off the shelf and it literally broke into like 50 pieces. Oh my God. <laughs> but you know, like we'd, we make models all the time out of a bunch of pieces. It's just all the fun again, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think the best thing to do when something happens like that, whether it's, your, you know, a trophy or, or a really nice model is just to not panic and be like, yeah, I can fix this. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So yeah, here, here's a question for you. So, you know, you were, you were painting just miniatures, I guess, to, to play with initially. Um, what was sort of the tipping point that made you want to start getting into competitive painting and, you know, painting at, the, at that higher level? Well, I think that just like it had been that way for a long time. Like um, I would see the models that are on the box sets and in their books and stuff. And it was like, well, somebody's got to have that job. Um, but it was really like an impossible dream at the time because the only miniature gaming company at the time was Games Workshop and, I'm on the other side of the world from them. Right. <laughs> so it just seemed like crazy and impossible, whatever. But um, the guy that owned my local game store, um, he was the first editor of No Quarter magazine. So it was just like, you know, come down and have an interview. This is like your chance to get your foot in the door and, and, and do what you I've always wanted to do, you know? Sure. Um, so I gave it a shot, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, the rest is history, I guess. Um, but I'd, I'd always really thought that I was in love with the art form. I was in love with, um, and, you know, doing this. I, I, it's when I'm painting, I feel just the most comfortable and the most uh, sort of serene, and I can get lost in, in that time painting. I think that that's kind of a universal thing amongst miniature painters or just artists in general. You know, that's what, what um, gets us draws us to it and keeps us going, keeps us painting, even even when, you know, we might have some troubles going on. If anything, like, miniature painting was, like, what helped me get through a lot of, like, troubling times when I was a teenager. And I think that, like, um, it still helps me get through whatever is going on in my life. Um, so I think that that's what really originally drew me to, to painting. No, I, I think that's that's a really universal experience for for anybody who paints, or, or as you said, does any kind of um, artistic, creative work. But you know, so so when you, when you were kind of getting started as a serious painter, you know, where were you looking to for inspiration? Was it was it all the White Dwarf Red Era period, or or elsewhere in like fine art, or you know, what, what were your inspirations? I think back at, originally, I was really just looking at you know White Dwarf and other miniature painters. It wasn't until a lot later in my um, painting career that I got a lot more inspired by fine art and um, just uh, art from throughout the ages. And, and recently, like my more recent work is much more inspired by, you know, artists from all throughout history, especially artists like Rembrandt or um, with my portraiture and stuff. I like to paint busts and that sort of thing. And I really like get inspired by him in particular because he's like kind of the master of portraits. Um, but also, you know, within the fantasy realm, um, Frank Frazetta is, is a big inspiration because of his use of color and how uh, I think that 
he's his art is really successful in both our artistic way but also in, in a fantastical sort of setting um really inspired a lot by um fine art these days and i really enjoy going to the art museums throughout the country when i get to travel or even throughout the world now um i always go to the art museums and really enjoy those and get inspired by you know just the history of art which as an artist practicing today you can see yourself as part of that history um even though it seems like you know what we're doing this not everybody considers it to be fine art but i think that eventually it will get some recognition you know maybe not in our lifetimes but some at some point somebody's gonna look back and be like look at these crazy little models that they used to paint back in the day this is really amazing sure <laughs> <laughs> anyway yeah um but originally i think i was more inspired by uh you know white dwarf and and games workshop painters especially mike mcveigh who was kind of like the first you know star miniature painter yeah. i suppose and um it was pretty cool because working for privateer when i first started in the studio like he was the studio director him and his wife Allie Allie mcveigh was the you know head studio painter there and i got to learn from them before they ended up leaving so it was kind of a pretty amazing i don't know six to eight months experience being in the studio with them and they'd listen to um uk radio and and uh we'd have tea at one every day huh. and it was, <laughs> it was kind of fun you know so it was, it was pretty cool yeah and i still get to see him every once in a while at gen con or something like that and we chat for a bit and uh it's, it's neat no that's very cool you know so i, I think sometimes i think about um you know i guess when you, you were starting to get painting seriously at least on the competitive level around what 2002 you said yeah that was the first uh you know competitive like it that was my first golden demon that I went to, but then it, it's interesting. Like I, I didn't compete for a long time while I was a studio painter because it's kind of, there's a bit of a conflict there, I think. Um, so it wasn't for many, there was a number of years there, probably like five years or so while I was just studio painting and not competing at all. And it wasn't until um, crystal brush started I think that there had been two, maybe three years of Crystal Brush going on, and I finally convinced them to send me as part of the Adepticon team. And I, you know, made some privateer. Uh, I painted a Colossal that year for the competition. And then each year after that, I would do one big scene. I had done a couple of uh, dioramas kind of within the War Machine, Warm Hordes uh, setting, but with my own stories. They weren't like a you know, a diorama of a story, story from the books or anything. It was just like taking these characters and putting them into some story that I had thought up. So it was kind of like a, a bit of my artistic vision using their world. And then um, they'd send me to the con. And I would teach at the convention and uh, and get to compete then. But there was a lot, there's a big gap there where I didn't really compete very much at all. And before that, I was just kind of, other than Golden Demon, just competing uh, on the local level, you know, at the local game store, we'd have the local competitions and stuff like that. And there was one guy growing up when I was a teenager, and he was like a Golden Demon winner, and he would bring his Golden Demon winning stuff and compete with the same stuff oh, at man. the local 
Kid. So I was like, forever silver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you get used to that. It's probably, it was a good experience because, I mean, pe- competing in major band competitions is a, can be a very punishing experience, you know? Oh, it's so brutal, I yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it, can, it can be really brutal. I think that, like, not only having that experience and some of the other experiences I've had, they've made me a better competitor, but also now that I'm a judge, you know, at a lot of competitions, I hope that I'm a better judge and that I can give people the feedback that actually makes that competing process um, worthwhile, whether no matter how they place, you know, because I think competition makes us better um like it can, can push your push you to do something that you weren't wouldn't normally do um but if you don't get that feedback if you don't get if you don't learn something from it it can it can derail people as well so i always try to be conscious of that and make it a positive experience no matter how people do in the competition now that makes sense you know this is sort of an aside but judging is miniatures is such a difficult thing and you know one of the things that happened to me several times when i was working at privateers i'd be you know uh working as staff at a convention a smaller convention or such and um we'd get there and there'd be a miniatures painting competition and the convention organizer would be like oh and you guys are going to judge it and of course it would be me and you know some other guy on the events team or some such and we, we, we don't, you know, we're both, we're miniatures painters. And we, we know what we like, but we're not, we're by no means judges. And it was always one of the worst experiences of my professional career was being sort of, you know, forced to judge people's miniatures without having like a really solid understanding of like what's good and what isn't um, and being able to provide that feedback. And, you know, it was always such an intimidating thing to have to do. And, you know, I'm sure I probably made some bad judgment calls, but uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. And, you know, I, I think that it's a really interesting topic to talk about, you know, what, what goes into judging a miniatures painting and, you know, what are you looking for? How do you discern, you know, between your personal taste, what you think is just a really cool sculpt and what's actually a really good paint job? Because I don't think that's all that's necessarily very intuitive for uh, the common person. Yeah. um, And by no means is the way I judge going to be the same as other people. But um, I can kind of talk about the way I go about it these days is um, there's kind of like three things that I, I will take into my judging and um, three big categories. And by far the biggest, most important thing is actually like the general vision of the piece. Uh, a lot of times people get caught up in, in um, details, but really like the, the big compositional things about your piece, color composition, your lighting, um, the contrasts that you're using on the piece, these are the things that are going to like grab people's attention at a distance. And more than anything else, this is like really important. Um, how you're able to use all those things to kind of focus the attention or draw the eye around the piece and show all the different little, um, you know, details off is more important than your technical skill, which is actually the second thing I, I judge. Also very important. I would say, you know, um, the, general vision of the piece is maybe 50%. The technical aspect is like 35 to 40%, probably 40%, you know? So like, uh, those two things are important and I really stay away from, you know, things like, I think that 
uh, some traps that judges fall into is if they, for example, are really skilled at painting non-metallic metals, or maybe by contrast, if they can't do it, uh, they can. They might see non-metallic metals as being like you know superior to painting with metallics mm-hmm. or something like that. So they would judge that higher. It's like I don't do that. I'm really like I think I can judge since I can do paint both. I can kind of judge both independently. Um, so anyway, the second aspect is like kind of all the technical aspects. You know, maybe uh, everything that goes into that, like small details, blending um textures freehand you know all these things that might go into the piece but some of those things can even detract from the overall general vision of the piece if you don't put them on in in a in a way that is pleasing to the eye so the the first aspect the general vision aesthetics is the most important then the technical aspect and then there's like the last 10 percent of judging would be like creativity and um like doing something that i just haven't seen before so surprise the judges with something that is like really unique really you really personal maybe tells a story you know mm-hmm. um these, these sorts of things like because if you're if you take two pieces and they are you know equally well composed equally detailed and beautiful you have to have some way to like make a judgment call and like, and that's going to be that creative aspect. You don't want to like have something that's just creativity, just like a really great idea, but isn't it executed well. You don't want that to win over stuff. That's like really, you know, people have taken the time and effort sure. and, and have all that skill. You don't want, you don't want them to lose out to it, but you know, there is, it needs to be part of the judging so that's kind of like the last sort of 10% that makes up the judging. And I think that it's really important to have that because you can't just be like, like painting isn't, you can't be a manager painting machine. You're like, um, it needs to have that passion and needs to have that creativity. And you can really tell when it's there and when it's not. Um, one thing I see that's common is like this is this kind of two approaches to like a competition that I like to talk about where like the first approach I think um, is somebody who's like they really want to win so they try to figure out what the judges are looking for um, or what's popular right and they play that you know like whatever that thing is you know something that's fantastic fantasy and really popular so it's just like you know, big space marine or World of Warcraft or you know these sorts of like things that are really popular subjects. You know, for for me. and then they'll just just do it as best they can. And um, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's I don't feel like it's really personal. Makes um, sense. At least it wouldn't be for me if I did it that way. So what I try to do is I try to. Um, come up with an interesting idea that I haven't seen done before or, like, that's really personal to me and push myself beyond what I've been able to do in the past. And the great thing about approaching things that way is that even if you don't, don't do well in the competition, you've at least pushed yourself into some new area that you haven't done before. You know, um, instead of just playing to whatever your strengths are and doing 
doing the same thing that you're comfortable with just to, to really good level, you're kind of, um, kind of pushing yourself and allowing yourself to grow, I think. So that's the way I approach the competition personally. If people, um, have a different approach, then that's fine. But, um, yeah. And that's how I kind of, uh, approach the judging. That's the best I can do. You know, <laughs> like, uh, I've seen thousands and thousands of models and, um, and that helps, but, uh, yeah, how I judge is going to be different than other people too. So, no, of course. So, so Kirstie, what are, what are some common things you see, um, that disqualify somebody from like, you know, the, the final cut in a miniatures competition that may not be, you know, sort of obvious. Is it, is it brush strokes? Is it, you know, color composition? Is there anything like that seems to be a general trap people fall into? I think the, the things that are most common to hold people back, at least are, um, mistakes in the composition, um, not just color composition, but just like the overall um, composition. The most common critique that people get is not enough contrast, which I think is kind of a terrible technique, a te- terrible um, critique because it doesn't give people enough information. Sure. But it's like the most common um, critique, and it has to do with composition on your piece. Um, you need to not only have a lot of contrast and that has to do with the different types of contrast, um, color just being one aspect of, of contrast and all of these contrasts put together is what we can call aesthetics. So the aesthetics has been studied it has hundreds of years of, you know, artistic study behind it. And it applies to any type of art that you want to be pleasing to the eye you know, yeah, um, modern art has kind of thrown aesthetics out the window, but, you know, and I think with miniatures, we want things to be pleasing um, and to also um, make sense as far as the lighting and stuff like that. And I think the lighting in particular, as in like having a light source on the figure, even if there isn't like an object source lighting or something like that, that's probably the most common mistake or the thing that most people are missing and that's why it's the thing that i try to teach the most is about how to envision light on the figure and how that light is going to illuminate the shapes and give you you more volume and more drama to the piece um i think that that's the that's the thing that's missing the most and the reason that it's missing the most is kind of obvious once you start to think about it which is that most people are learning from to paint from Games Workshop and their method doesn't take lighting into effect at all. In fact, it like purposely avoids thinking about light by having it be about um, sort of on a base level, say dry brushing and washing for example. This is what I would call painting in relief. Things that are deeper on the model are dark and things that are uh, kind of in relief or light. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how I learned how to paint originally. I painted that way for years. You can still have things look really great, but at a certain point, you're going to have to start thinking about light. And you're going to have to kind of like take those skills that you learned. You can still use those skills to apply the paint, but um, you need to apply in different ways because the truth is, that when you look at an object in real life, it doesn't, it isn't illuminated in the, that way. Right? No, there's a source, of course. Um, yeah. 
So um, I think that that is the biggest distinction, especially amongst American painters. And that's, that's a skill that, that most people have to learn um, to do better in, in competitions. So hopefully that helps answer the, answer the question. No, that, that makes perfect sense. I'm not one of those judges that will turn your model upside down and look at the bottom and see how like consistently it's painted yeah. or something like that. You know, I want, if a model like grabs me and like, you know, uh, draws me in, tells a story and looks amazing, it, it doesn't matter. Like as far as like how consistently it's painted or like, if the back is like a little is darker or whatever, it's not going to disqualify you. There's some judges that are like that. Right. Like that, so. so you mentioned um, in American painters, do you find there's, there's still a big divide between European and American competitive miniatures painters in terms of um, style, not necessarily, seems, you know, personality. Uh, it seems to be that way. I think that that the lighting aspect is kind of the biggest, biggest part. And just having talking, talking to people, I think that art is actually taught a lot more in school. Yeah, that's true. And places, and I think that that's kind of where we we have a bit of a disadvantage. And that's that's all. You know, we can you can go out and you can independently study aesthetics and composition and all of these things. About there's plenty of great painters from America, um, but it we're kind of introduced to a lot of these things at a later later time yeah you know, i was lucky go, go ahead to, yeah sorry I, I was lucky enough to have a um my mom was an artist so i was like kind of introduced to it earlier so but a lot, a lot of people don't get it in school at all and then you know they just want to paint nice looking models uh, but to to start competing you kind of have to think about the whole overall aesthetics and it's going to be challenging, but anybody can learn it. Anybody can learn it. There's no such thing as like uh, natural talent in art, I would say. Like, I mean, of course, you can be proven wrong by, you know, prodigies or whatever. That's sure. usually what people hold up as proving natural talent or whatever. But honestly, I think that everybody has to learn it sometime, somehow. Yeah, you know, just a couple a couple of things you, you made me think of. You know, um, a very good friend of mine is a fine artist, you know, and, she's she's extremely talented naturally so as well but you know um she was she's always of the opinion that you know she could teach anybody to draw to her level if they're willing to put the time and the work in i, I think a lot of people get kind of caught up on this idea that if they aren't instantly and immediately good at it that you know they'll never they never will be um and i think that's just not true at all but i, I think more interestingly is you know um talking about the the fine art education that's available to europeans and not americans something i've kind of noticed over the last couple of decades in miniatures painting is that you know, as you were saying earlier, the uh, the quality and, and scope of miniatures painting has dramatically increased since the 90s. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, I think, is due to the, the European painters that came out of, you know, Rackham Studios and stuff, the, the, all those French and Spanish guys in the early 2000s who just kind of suddenly skyrocketed past everybody else who was doing stuff professionally. Um, but the, uh, the point I'm trying to make is um, there's so much to learn from fine art in miniatures painting that I think the average painter is just not aware of or even thinks to do. And it results in people reinventing the wheel a lot. Like, you know, I, I've seen people kind of describing what, you know, what we called in fine art a chiaroscuro uh, technique with a different name or just having come up with it on their own and be like, check out this cool thing I just invented. And it's like, mm, if you, if you've read some books, that's been around yeah. for 500 years. Right. Yeah. For example, I, I have a quick way of painting uh, that I call sketch style. I've kind of branded it. 
but really it's this older style of painting that's been around hundreds of years called grisaille just means grayscale in French, uh-huh. basically. We start with black and white sketch of, we we paint where the light is coming from and all of the lighting on the figure in black and white first, so we make sure it's really, really dramatic. And then you can just put out glazes of, of translucent color on that to add color to it. And this is a technique that's been around hundreds of years, and I'm just trying to use, trying to show people how you can paint, you know, your gaming figures really quickly doing it this way, but at the same time, you'll be learning about, you know, lighting on yeah. the figures and uh, and all that stuff. So when I teach someone who's just learning, I'll teach them this method of painting. It's also the method I use on all the gaming stuff that I paint uh-huh. for people and for my own myself, um, because you can get models painted in about an hour a piece, you know, or you can. It's really great for assembly lining. You don't even have to know what colors you're going to paint on the figure sure. when you do it. Um, and it's a great way to teach. And I, I, honestly, like in fine art, grisaille is usually used as a teaching tool. You're not necessarily expected that this is how you're going to end up painting at the end of your right. learning, but it's a good way to um, to uh, learn about lighting and uh, and also um, the most important type of contrast, which is value contrast, the, the contrast between light and dark. That's the most important type of contrast because that's how our eyes um, have learned to perceive the world around us. That's how we know what the shapes of objects are and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So more than any other type of contrast, the contrast in value will affect your composition the most. Um, so that's another reason why learning in this method is has been used for hundreds of years to teach art. Yeah, I mean, your, your sketch styles have really taken off over the last, I, don't, I, I guess you started doing what, maybe six, seven years ago? No, it was like not even that uh, really? long ago because, yeah, I started doing it um, maybe a year or two before I left Privateer. So I'd probably say like oh, okay. five years ago now. Um, it was kind of like I was, we were playing this game uh, called Talisman, which is an old Games Workshop game that they had re-released. And, you know, I was painting 40 hours a week, so I didn't have a lot of time to yeah. paint other things. You like, you know, if you... If you try to paint other things on top of that, you're going to get burnt out and your whole oh, life sure. will be not very much fun, you know? Um, so when I talk to, you know, professional miniature painters who are painting for a studio, I was like, yeah, give yourself a break. Like, really, don't try to take commissions on top mm-hmm. of doing that. But anyway, like, we were playing this game, and I just kind of wanted to have it be special for people. We were playing it a lot, so anytime somebody would win the game, I'd paint their one particular character. Oh, that's cool. And I was... So I decided to try this Grisai method and um, and see how fast I get the painting down to. So it was getting down to about 45 minutes to an hour a piece. And it's like, wow, you could get a whole army yeah. painted pretty easily um, doing it this way. So that's kind of how I was born. And then when I left Privateer and started my own studio, Contrast Miniatures, um, it kind of became my way of... Um, teaching the next generation of, you know, gaming miniature painters. And then also I would paint this whenever I had a client who wanted an army painter sure. or something like that. Because I didn't want to um, do the same thing I'd been doing for, you know, almost right. a decade, which was doing uh, box level art for studios and stuff like that. Um, it's like, I wanted to have more variety in what I was doing both 
on the high end be able to paint at my highest level, which I wasn't able to do by the time I left privateer. Like I'd have kind of grown past what I was able to mm-hmm. do at work, but also be able to offer um, services to people who were just gamers who wanted armies painted or wanted to learn how to paint, um, you know, and be able to get engaged with those people. So instead of being like, well, let me teach you how to blend when really, you really want to learn how to do is right. paint an army and have it look and be happy with it, you know? So, um, it was, a, it was, I was using it as a teaching tool. I still do. And I think it's a great class for anybody to take, whether they're a complete beginner or they're an intermediate painter who wants, wants to be a better painter. Well, I think you've sold me on signing up for one soon, but, uh, <laughs> we'll come back to that after the episode. <laughs> Um, but I, I think it's really cool. You know, you're, you're talking about the sort of various, um, the differing needs of painting. Um, that's, that's been something that's been really important to me with, with brush wielders because, you know, brush wielders union, it's, it's not, it's not meant for specifically for competitive painters, but competitive painters are welcome. Um, you know, and, and my, my hope is that brush wielders is a, a community and a tool that lets people paint to whatever their need and, and desire is right. You know, I, we've had some people, in our discord who have, you know, entered some of their first competitions this year with, you know, varying degrees of success. Um, and we have some people who like myself are never going to enter a miniatures painting competition because it's, it's just not what they want to do. Um, but I think it's, it's really great that, you know, your, your, both your, your teachings, your instruction and your, your commission services, you know, recognize those different things people want out of the hobby. And it's, it's such an important distinction. I think people sometimes get a little caught up and well, I can't, I'm not going to be a competitive painter. So why bother? Um, you know, do, do you hear a lot of that yourself or do you, do you think that maybe that, that attitude's maybe going away a little bit? Well, I think that like, and this is true for any type of art, you're going to be your worst critic. The person who's going to be like the biggest jerk about your your painting or what you're doing is going to be yourself. And I think that people kind of um, hamstring themselves or like hold themselves back before they even get started a lot of yeah. time. So I see that a lot. The thing, the biggest obstacle you're going to have is um, is yourself and, and putting yourself out there. Um, yeah, I think I see that a lot. Um, I think, but one thing I want to say is that like the resources that are available to people right now, it's like it's, it's huge. bonkers, it's isn't it? Like... Than when I, yeah. <laughs> It's like the, I had nothing. I had nothing to like base my my painting. I had nobody to help me. Uh, I had nobody to teach me how to paint when I was younger and when I first started. Yeah. You know, like the the resources and the the community that we have is just completely like uh, a quantum leap above what was available. Oh, for sure. It was. Like, <laughs> it was like compared to it's like living in a big city, but compared to being like stranded on an island all by yourself. Yeah. I mean, you know? I, I think the first miniatures <laughs> yeah. I painted was probably like a little set of Rel Partha. It was like, like 15 millimeter D and D guys. You know what I'm talking about? And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the only yeah. thing I had to go on was, you know, the, the photograph on, actually not even the photo, the painting on the front of the miniatures, right. Of, of the characters that the miniatures were based. It was concept art essentially. And, you know, there was, there was, there was nowhere else yeah. to go. There was no, you couldn't get on YouTube and be like, oh, how have 14 other people painted this thing? Or, oh, I need to see three different tutorials. And, nah, it didn't exist. You just, you had to buy your crappy Ralpartha paints and, uh, and make do. It's, it's wild how much stuff is out there for people who want to paint these days. Are there, are there any resources you find particularly useful? 
Um, well, I'm not really like mining those resources sure. myself per se. Um, but um, I have friends that are making some great stuff out there, like Vincent Venturella, and um, I think that he does a lot of good uh, kind of base. Um, a variety of different introduction to techniques and things like that. I think he does a good job. And then um, I'm part of a, I, I'm, I mean, I make videos for Patreon um, at. Oh yeah. I'm a, I'm a subscriber. On Patreon. So it's like me and Aaron Lovejoy and Elizabeth, Elizabeth Beckley. So you have three artists on that Patreon. And because I think that that's kind of like, a great resource um, out there because you get to learn from all three of us. You get to see our different takes on things and we all paint differently. Um, so it's a great sort of survey of what's out there and um, it kind of fills the need for all different types of painters, whether they are into painting busts or things that are just there to be painted or they're gamers or somewhere in between, you know, wanting to paint gaming models at a display sort of level. So um, we try to do all different types of things for that um, as well. And we, we, we paint a variety of things too, you know, uh, all of us paint some gaming stuff, some display stuff and some like, you know, really out there yeah. competition stuff. So um we're just like everybody else. We've just been doing it. Sure. <laughs> Gone down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I subscribe to um, Managers Monthly myself, and there's just some really great, um, you know, technique videos and stuff being posted very regularly. Like the, the, the value is just really wonderful. I've been very impressed with it. Cool, yeah. it's It's been a good experience being a part of that, and, uh, and yeah, I think that uh, we've created some good content on yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. So many people out there, you can just find. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, it, it's 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 an embarrassment of riches when it comes to this stuff these days. Um, so are there are there any like you know for just the average painter, are there any things that you are there any like fundamentals you think that people really should be considering that maybe they aren't? Well, like I think I was saying before, I think composition aesthetics is really important, and uh, my favorite book for that um, is called um, Color and Light by James Gurney. Uh, so James Gurney, he was what's called a plain air painter, which just means that you go and you paint whatever you see. So he's actually painting from life, you know, landscapes and things like that. But then he started this, um, art book, uh, but he released all these art books called Dinotopia. Oh, of course. Where he's created this fantasy world fantasy world with dinosaurs and all this stuff, these uh, stories and things like that. So he's taking all of these skills that he's learned from painting life and he's made fantasy out yeah. of it. Right. So the way he thinks about um, painting is very realistic, but then he's applying it to fantasy and that book is just really great and incredible um, way to learn. Um, it's not, at the it, it like it's very accessible because every spread in the book like every two pages a two-page spread is like um its own topic so it's like little yeah. chunks that you can digest easily it's very visual um so i think that that book is really really great and just learning about um on a base level color theory like betty edwards book on color is a good um uh like just primer very basic stuff um 
and but just kind of maybe stepping out of the miniature scene and start just do a little bit of study in, in fine arts i think is going to go a long way uh or you know go and take an yeah. art class you know then there's all sorts of um you know uh just little art academies you can spend a couple hundred bucks and two three hundred bucks to go to a couple of art classes for a quarter and just enjoy it you know it doesn't have to be about getting a degree or something it's about learning these skills and you can you can get a lot better really no, quick that makes perfect that. sense um and of course uh <laughs> like uh taking coaching um with a professional like myself for example i think is or taking classes from us either at um uh, conventions i go to all sorts of conventions so you can go and you know, taking painting classes at conventions or, um, you know, I travel around and do weekend courses in different cities, uh, taking these sorts of classes that can be a great way to really, uh, engage with other people who are passionate about the art and, and get that, uh, you know, really concentrated, um, yeah. knowledge. But these days, even, even more so like I'm doing, I, I just, uh, bought a house and we have a uh, guest bedroom so people will actually come out and visit me in my studio and uh take you know a weekend of uh painting just one-on-one sure. -on -one with me i think that i mean more than anything else that is the you know best way that for you to just really get a, a lot of learning yeah it's like a, it's like a retreat once. kind of um, yeah, it's like a painting vacation, exactly. Sometimes people will bring their family out and they can go out and have fun while he, he's taking their class. And uh, I've even had couples come out and I'll teach both of them together and that's really fun. Um, and it's a great way for me to you know meet people and um, they can see my studio and I can I can uh, meet them wherever they're at mm -hmm. in their painting journey. You know, uh, I customize each class for what they're interested in, what's going to be the best thing for them to learn. And um, we just kind of go from there. I've seen some really great progress. Everybody has a really great time. So um, that's, a, that's always a, a good way, probably the best way to learn. But, you know, there's lots of other options out there, depending on how much people can spend or um what they how much time they yeah, have no that, that makes, makes sense that's, that really sounds very appealing um you know sort of sort of unrelated but uh, i was curious are there any what do you do you have strong feelings about any brush brands or anything like that because i know this is often a contentious issue for for serious painters you know some people swear by the windsor newton some people are like oh i just use an army painter brush until i kill it well um like one thing i will say about brushes is that having a good brush there's just certain things you can't do if you don't have a good brush so um, it's important to have high quality brushes at a certain point in your painting. Um, I still really like the Winsor Newton Series 7. I've been using that brush for years. There have been um, like kind of quality issues that people have brought up, but I think uh, not all the time, but some of the time this has to do with uh, knockoffs that um, have appeared on the market. They're usually sold through Amazon. Um, so I, I have kind of run into that before. Um, but I also like the artist Opus brush is pretty good. Um, 
I but I kind of have stuck to the Windsor Newton Series Seven. Also, the Raphael eighty four hundred four yeah. is a good brand. There's a little difference between the two. Um, the the Series Seven has more spring. Um, spring has to do with um, the ability of the brush to yeah. keep its shape. And uh, what this does is that you can actually get force feedback through the brush itself, so you'll be able to feel when the brush makes contact, you know, and like how much pressure you have and these sorts of things. It's like you get a feel for it because the brush has right. what's called spring, right? Um, but the Raphael eighty four hundred four has decent spring, but not as much as the Series Seven. But it has more belly. But they call it belly, but it really is just like how much um, paint or um, that's, yeah, how much paint the brush can hold. So, um, and that just has to do with how long the bristles are mm-hmm. on those two brushes. So I just like, I like the Series 7 because it's this great sort of uh, sweet spot between having great spring, enough belly, you know, a really fine point. Um, so it has all those aspects. Um and is not specialized in any yeah. one way or the other, uh, and that's that's why I like that brush. But yeah, there's been some controversy with it, they and are. they are expensive. So yeah, um, so you know, like it depends on um, how how much you want to spend, and uh, but it is really important to have a good brush. That comes to a good point. Um, other brands like Broken Toad, I've I heard they're out of business. About, I, I, you're you're uh, like maybe the second or third person who's recommended them. And I, I think some another guest actually was like, I used to love the Broken Toads, but they don't make them anymore. Okay, yeah. I mean, I haven't had them for a few years, you know. Uh, and I, I, <laughs> I never actually like throw a brush away. It just gets like, it's like they've gone through yeah. their tours of duty and they get retired. Once in a while, they have to like <laughs> they'll get called up and and into service again. And I don't know. I have some pretty hashed brushes, that, but um, yeah, I always stick with the Series Seven. One thing that I see a lot actually that uh, you asked like what some common common things that I see people doing um, is that when they load their brush up with paint, they'll just load up the very tip of the brush. They're very careful with it and uh this really causes a lot of problems <laughs> uh it makes a lot of things very hard uh to do um especially things like blending and and all sorts of things so it's really good to like load your brush up with a lot of paint you don't want to have it get down to the where the furl is obviously but you want the paint to be like halfway to two thirds down the length of the brush and really be loaded up because then you can get good flow of paint out of the brush. Uh, and this is one of those things that I have to, that I end up, um, you know, teaching my students. Yeah. You know, no, nobody <laughs> so. taught me that. It took me a very long time to figure it out on my own. Um, but you know, the, I, I get, what I think is maybe counterintuitive is that, you know, when you, when you load up that, that belly of the brush you were mentioning earlier, you know, the paint is actually kind of feeding your tip from there. And it means you're, you're going back to the pot list too, aren't you? Absolutely. And a lot of times, like if you, if you start getting lower flow, all you have to do is like uh, roll your brush and it will, it will suck more paint out of the belly of the brush. And you don't have to go to the back to the pot at all. Um, and, and it's very common when people are um, the biggest 
problem people have doing like things like freehand and lines and things like that is that they have trouble with flow and it's always because they don't load their brush up enough if, if anything when you're doing freehand you need to make sure that your brush is like really well loaded so you get enough flow off the tip of the brush um, paint consistency is important too but really like loading up your brush if you're not loading your up your brush well enough it doesn't really matter how what your the consistency is not going to make up for that um so one one thing um is the so with the windsor newton series seven they have two different uh types of brushes they have the the normal long hair brush and then they have what's called a the mini series brush now there isn't a big difference between the different sizes of the mini series brush so I usually recommend that people just get a single mini series brush of like size one is a good one. So, but uh, that brush in particular is great for doing like freehand and lines and things like that because it's kind of designed to take some paint in the furl and not get messed up. So like you don't really have to worry about uh, oh, getting paint down the furl that's good to know. as much, nearly as much. Uh, with that brush in fact it like there's been times like there's a couple times where it's like i see paint i saw paint like dried down in the furrow of my mini series brush and even though there was nothing wrong with my brush i'm like oh, i need to get that paint cleaned out and the minute i tried to clean it out that paint i just started getting little flecks of dried paint oh man in the brush forever almost <laughs> so yeah <laughs> don't mess with it, it it's, it's designed to do to to be fine with it um it's it's better to use your brush uh, to its best ability rather than try to be really careful and uh, only loading up the tip of the brush and stuff like that because it won't do what you want it to. Yeah. Right. I mean, the reality is no, no matter how well you take care of a brush, it does have a lifespan, right? Like you're, you're going to have to replace it one day, so you might as well get your use out of it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You're never going to be able to, like, have it last forever. Especially um, if you're painting a whole army, right? Like, that can take a lot out of a brush right there. Yeah, absolutely. And, some and like, when you're painting a whole army and stuff, you might not want to use your Windsor Newton yeah, sure. base coat, for example. Or Yeah. Um, I mean, my favorite brush is the size 2 Windsor Newton Series 7, and that's just because it, it has everything. It has, like, a great – you can hold a lot of paint – and uh it has a good it has a good enough point to do most things um and you can just kind of like use it for everything but um if you if you you know maybe you can only buy a couple brushes at that price so having some other brushes that are pretty good they can use for doing base coating and stuff like that instead of your nice brushes it can be yeah you know i think i asked your advice about this several years ago and i i got a number two um, and I, I've just never looked back and it's been my number two Windsor Newton series seven has been my, my, my work brush for, for several years now. And I've been very happy with it. You know, I, I got a number one as well, just for like when I want to do a little finer detail, but I, I find out I don't really even have a need to go below that. Yeah. I mean, either like I, I don't, I, I mean, it's like super rare for me to go down to like a zero, the size one and two series seven, like that's all you really need. Uh, and that's can be pretty great. Cause like, if you think about it, like uh, maybe if you're not buying those nice brushes, you're buying like a ton of other brushes, you know, maybe you're probably still spending less, but might be, might be less, um, more equal. Yeah. And you know, and with, <laughs> with the, the good quality brushes, if you do take care of them, they are going to last a good amount of time. Right. Like, you know, I, like, like you said, I, I don't base coat with my good brushes. Um, 
and you know, but I, I paint a lot of miniatures. So I probably paint about two hundred a year. Um, and you know, I, I find a number two lasts me eighteen months, two years. Yeah, they can last a long time. The, the higher quality brushes, they last a lot longer. And even when they do start to wear yeah. out, they're still good enough for you to be using them. In a sense, like that, maybe your base coating brush <laughs> exactly, is your old. That's exactly what I do. Too. <laughs> right? And uh, yeah, like talking about those veteran brushes, they're still. It's still good. Around, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So that, yeah, that's how I do it too. Uh, oh, the other thing um, that can wear your brush out um is mixing paint yeah. with a brush so if you're mixing up colors and stuff like that it's always good to use kind of one of those old soldiers rather than your nice brush um because a lot of times your brush not only gets loaded up a lot but it gets overloaded when you're mixing paint together and that's that's one of the most common ways for your brush to wear out um another brush care thing is that uh people will wash the brush out and then they'll like wipe it off on a paper towel or something like that, get a tip on it, and then say that it's fine. But what happens is that there's actually like still like some your paint water isn't super clean or like uh, this stills like watered down paint. There's some moisture in there, and that has a little bit of paint in it, and that will build up over time. So what you really want to do and people people will watch me do this and they're like wow you're really being tough on that brush but i will like pinch the brush and really just wake out all really? the moisture out of the brush before i put it away yeah um because that can make a big difference too maybe as you're working it's okay to kind of just like to do that where you're just kind of not cleaning out fully but at the end of the day always clean it out fully or clean it out fully as much as you can because I mean, you're not going to hurt the brush by pinching it and really, you know, making mm -hmm. out all the moisture. That's not going to hurt the brush. It's it, like they're really, they're tough and well put together. It's it's getting that paint down in the furrow area that that will uh, you know, cause them to wear out. And one way that the paint gets down there is to have that that water still left. That, in the that makes a lot of sense. Day. Actually, that's really good advice, which I'm going to start taking starting tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's really good info well you know it's been really good talking to you and i'd like to have you back maybe for some more specific topics in the future but uh yeah i mean you know having kind of come up in the industry with you at the same time admittedly in very different paths it's been really inspirational watching you know how, how far you've come as a painter even in that time um and i think it's really cool the stuff you're doing with contrast miniatures and um miniatures monthly yeah thanks simon uh yeah it's been great to see your path as well and i think it's awesome what you're doing uh with uh, brush wielders and i'd love to come back and talk about whatever aspect of painting yeah i got some ideas about, for uh, for know, the winter and spring so i think we'll be chatting again but uh, again you know if you're uh, if you're interested and you'd like to hear what matt had to say check out contrast miniatures uh which i believe what's the full website on that contrast miniatures and of course miniatures monthly on patreon and you can see lots of matt's work and videos and uh, all that good stuff yeah i'm also on instagram at matt dipietro art uh, so it's a little different sure. name on Instagram. And, you know, if, if, you want if you're listening, you're going to find links to all of this stuff in the uh, the show notes, too. But uh, Matt, again, thanks, man. It was really great talking to you and really informative. Thank you, Simon. I've enjoyed this. It's great. The Brush Builders Union is a community of like-minded miniatures gamers dedicated to playing their games fully painted and supporting one another in their craft. Brush Builders Union is here to help you stay on track with tools and a community of fellow painters to encourage you in your journey. Take the Union Pledge and learn more at brushwieldersunion.com.